Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. The Whiskey and Map podcast opens its fourth season with Brent Bishop, a mountaineer and explorer. Brent has climbed the highest peaks around the world. In the process, he has encountered Chechen Mafia, murderous Papuans, and killing avalanches. Brent, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Brent, as is the custom here at Whiskey and a Map, do you have a good drinking story for us? Yeah, I do. Um, I've been climbing a long time, and it seems in the old days there, there were a lot of there was a lot of drinking on expeditions, and there are a lot of stories. But a couple of them that that really stand out to me is I was guiding Mount Elbrus in the late in the late nineties. It was the height of sort of the the Chechen separatist movement, and we were on our way to, to Elbrus, and we were down near Mineral Bode in in the Caucasus region, and we we went to this park just to kind of walk around on one of our travel days and just get some exercise and some air. And um, we have a pretty small group. I think there were six of us. And all of a sudden, these uh, these two large blacked-out BMWs, like these sedans, just pulled up to the park. And out of the first sedan jumped two guys with, you know, they're in pinstripe suits, and their suits have, like, spats. They're wearing spats. They look like they're from, a you know, a 1940s gangster movie. And uh, they've got Kalishnikovs, and they get out, and they kind of look around, and they're obviously like the bodyguards. And then the next car pulls up, and these guys get out as well, and uh, a couple of them have Kalishnikovs, and there's obviously a guy in charge, and he kind of comes over to us and starts, uh, he asks a couple of questions, and they're they're really kind of non-pulsed by that were there to climb. I mean, they're a little interested. And then one of the guys on our trip was this big, rough-looking guy that looked like, uh, I mean, he was an ex-Marine. Well, you're always a Marine, so he was a Marine, but he was out of the service. And one of the guys just came over and and looked at him and clasped him on the shoulder. And this guy, his name was Brat. He he looked at at the big Chechen and he just like whacked him on the shoulder and then like everybody laughed, and then the, the the Chechen guy gave him a bear hug and kind of tossed him down. And then the the um, the uh, brought our our buddy. He he picked up the Chechen and kind of tossed him down. And everybody was like quiet for a second, and then everybody started laughing because it was sort of an odd kind of tense situation with with these guys in this park. And then they took Brat like they just they just. Put it, they kind of grabbed him and they said, he's coming with us to drink. And so for the next 24 hours, we thought Brat had been stolen by, by Chechen separatists on, on the way into the mountain. And apparently they were so impressed with Brat and his attitude, they took him on a 24-hour drinking binge. So he was finally returned to us. And it took us another 24 hours to kind of get him sober and moving because these guys drink hard. And that was sort of this, just sort of these 90 vignettes and guiding in strange places and odd things happening. And yeah, we thought we lost Brat on the way to Mount Elbrus. And it turned out the Chechens just stole him for 24 hours and plied him with a lot of vodka. That's a, uh, an extreme way to get a drinking buddy. It is. It is. You know, you know, we're climbers and we're looking around like, this is really odd. But they, could, they just zeroed in on him, like, because Brat was a big, tough guy. You could just tell that he was different than your average climber in terms of his, you know, ability to drink and brawl. And uh, they zeroed in on him and they stole him. <laughs> it was sort of, a, sort of a funny vignette on the way to, you know, climb a mountain. Tell me about your first introduction to Scotch. Yeah, you know, I was on a, a climb early on to Amit Blanc. It was around 2000. I was 
I, we took alcohol with us and being Americans, we took bourbon. There was a, there weren't very many people on Amada Blom during this period of time. And, uh, you actually climbed the mountain. Like, you know, there weren't a hundred tents at base camp that looked like Agincourt and fixed lines all over the mountain. So it was, it was kind of, it was a fun mountain to guide because you got to actually climb it and guide it in a, in a real manner. And there was a, a small team next to us, uh, and it was run by a guy named Henry Todd, this, this Brit that had been around and climbing in Nepal and Asia for ages. He was sort of this old school Brit. And he, he was great at telling stories and an amazing guy. And when he, when he, I found out that, uh, that when he found out I was drinking Jack Daniels, he kind of like dismissed me and brought out a bottle of scotch. And, you know, the, these sort of, you know, like I said, these vignettes to, to share these connections with people and someone like Henry Todd, who, you know, he was, a, he was cut from a different era. He was a wild man. The, you know, the rumor goes, and it was substantiated that he, uh, he did seven years in prison for uh, being, I think, the largest LSD dealer in, in England at a time. And so people called him uh, Seven Year Henry because of that. But these are the, you know, these are the, like, the people you met in the 80s and 90s that were in Nepal at the time before things really tipped. But, yeah, I'll, I'll give uh, Henry Todd credit for teaching me how to drink good scotch and developing a, my palate for it. And it continues this, this day. And, you know, every once in a while in Nepal over the last couple of years, I'd run into Henry. And he's still out there doing interesting things. He's still out there going. Yeah, he is. It's amazing. You know, he's, he's, he's not in jail, and he's, uh, he's a wonderful character from a different era. Growing up with famous adventure expedition parents, tell us about your, your mother and your father. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be born into a family that this was normal stuff, right? So people in the past have asked me, you know, how I came to climbing. And as, as I kind of say, as much as I picked climbing, it picked me. You know, nurture and nature worked hand in hand as a, as a kid growing up in this, in this type of family. So, you know, my father worked for National Geographic, um, but he, he started climbing and he was quite young. Uh, at 19, he, came, he was at Dartmouth and he came up with the idea to do the West Buttress of Denali, the first ascent of it. And so he rode away to this famous aerial photographer and climber and scientist at the time, Brad Washburn, and Brad sent him some, some photos. And uh, so my father and his climbing partner were going off to do this. And Brad then sort of hijacked the, uh, that trip in 1951. So it was my father, Brad Washburn, and a couple of people. And, you know, it was my dad's idea. And my dad and Brad and these guys did the first ascent of the West Buttress of Denali in 1951. For a 19-year-old kid from Cincinnati, that's setting the bar pretty high. And then, you know, his career with National Geographic, it led him to a bunch of photography assignments and climbing assignments. And he was a, he was a scientist and he was a glaciologist at this time. So he had a master's in glaciology, and he went in, in 60 and 61 to Nepal to do research on Amada Blom, what was called the Silver Hut Expedition. And, and Amada Blom is this amazing peak in, in the Khumbu Valley. And this team of four scientists, they put this what was called the Silver Hut. They built basically an insulated Quonset hut on the Mingbo Glacier at 18,000 feet and spent the winter there in collecting research. And it was under Ed Hillary's permits. And then, you know, they stared up at Amada Blom during that winter the whole time, and they were very well acclimated. So in, you know, 61, uh, they did the first uh, ascent of Amada Blom. And uh, then, of course, in 63, he was with the first American expedition and climbed Everest in 63. Yeah, that that set the, the bar pretty high. You know, my father certainly being in the pantheon of American mountaineering and in an era that that's that golden age of, you know, American climbing in the Himalayas. My mother, I, I, I actually find her to be equally impressive, right? So here's this, this gal from Cincinnati, Ohio, that hasn't traveled very much. And she marries my father and one of the first trips is she's responsible for getting all the scientific equipment on a ship in Europe uh, for that 60-61 scientific trip uh, that my father was on in Amada Blom. And she was just, you know, on a boat 
to India and then had to get the equipment on trucks and have it overland delivered with her on the trucks to Kathmandu and then get it, you know, uh, hauled into the Kumba region. And then she spent the the that winter of 6061 as the expedition uh, liaison, which is, you know, that sort of it put her in this, uh, you know, it just thrust her into this sort of life of adventure. And then, you know, 1963, she led the first commercial trip to ever space camp ever. Right. Because there were some there were some Americans that thought it might be an interesting idea to to go to ever space camp and say hello to the expedition. And you know, my mom had been there two years before, which not many, you know, weren't very many Westerners that had even been in country at that time or done that type of trekking. So my mom led treks ever since. I kind of liken her as the, the matriarch of American trek leaders. And then, like, adventure travel. Like, I always laugh at all these people that are talking about these great adventures and their new sprinter vans and, and what they're doing. And in 1968 to 1970, my mother and my father loaded up the two kids, my sister and me, and we were two and four. And they had this international harvester, which is a, a predecessor to the Suburban. And they, they got Airstream trail, you know, Airstream trailers to give them or lend them an Airstream. And they loaded it up on the QE2, which was that big passenger liner. And we all went over to Rotterdam uh, with, with uh, the trailer and the Suburban. And then my parents drove all the way through um, Europe, the Middle East, through uh, Central Asia, Afghanistan, through the Khyber Pass, through Pakistan, down to the... Indian, you know, subcontinent, and then all the way to Kathmandu, where they they dropped it off. So here's this lady with like two toddlers, basically, you know, driving around the world with an Airstream trailer and didn't think anything of it, right? So I roll my eyes about like this new age of, you know, van life, adventure travel, like, you know, this was uh, 50 years earlier and, you know, true adventure. Like we talked about whiskey and a map. There was probably a lot of whiskey and a lot of maps that were looked at. And then, then my parents marched the kids out into, you know, we trekked out to Western Nepal, this area called Jumla. And we lived in a, in a tent for the next 16 months while my father collected research for his doctorate. And that was really how I got connected with Sherpas because uh, we had a couple of Sherpas that were helping my dad with his research. And then there was a Sherpa named Kansha Sherpa that basically took care of me. You know, basically he was my nanny. So I, I, I look at it in my formative years. I was sort of feral and raised by Sherpas. So that's, uh, that's an excuse I, I, I stick to. Tell us about him. What, what are your memories of, of him as you were growing up? You know, when you're a kid at that age, you know, two to four, you know, it's hard to remember like what, what's real and what's, um, what's, what, what you remember from photographs, right? But Kansha, uh, his, he lived in, uh, the Kumbu Valley and in Namche Bazaar, which is the center of the Sherpa community in the Kumbu Valley. And as I started going back as, uh, as a young climber, um, in the, you know, in the early 90s, I'd go and visit him. You know, every every uh, expedition or trek that I was involved with, I'd go see him in, in Namche. And I'd go have tea with him and talk to him and show him photos of the family and my mother. And he's a, he's a national treasure because he's the last living member. When he was a, a boy, he was a cook boy on the 1953 Hillary Tenzing expedition. And then he was on the 63 Everest expedition. So he's, he's the last of, of this connection and he's still alive and it's amazing. So that, that connection goes, you know, from 1968 to, to just now, which is a, a lovely, you know, way to, you know, to, to be connected to a culture that's, is really imprinted on me, and I owe so much to. Well, let's go to the start of your climbing career. How'd that come about? Well, you know, my father was a climber. So, I, you know, we, we did a lot of climbing when I was a kid at the local crags and then 
family trips to the Tetons and getting dragged up stuff by my dad and his friends. And this was always a terrifying experience. Like, this is not like, I would put it under the, like, the heading of forced family fun, right? Like, I was terrified when I was younger. And then as I got older, it just sort of fell in place. And then by the time I was late in high school and into college, I was climbing, you know, anytime I could. I was traveling to climb. I was working jobs to go climb. I was climbing, you know, while I was at school. And then I, I started working as a as a climbing guide in Jackson Hole Mountain Guide at Jackson Hole Mountain Guides in the Tetons in 1986. And you know, I started as an apprentice guide and I you know, I hauled loads and helped with beginning and intermediate classes. And it, you know, you, you either do well or you don't. And I, it seemed like I, it was a good fit. And, and then I sort of graduated through the ranks to being a, a full, uh, full on guide. And that was sort of the cornerstone of, of, of really cutting my teeth in the Alpine world and, and in the Tetons, which just really feels like home to me. So I think I, must have been seven seasons guiding in the Tetons in the early days on and off. And then, you know, of course, that was a different era where, you know, you guided a little bit and then you went off and climbed. And whether it was, you know, to Alaska or to South America or had enough money to go to Yosemite, it was a, it was a different era in the 80s and into the early 90s. Throughout your career, what is the most memorable climb for you? You know, like, I would say... The first Everest trip was um, was a it was a really important climb for me because it was 1994. We got to climb Everest in good style, although we didn't realize it was you know sort of the end of an era. You know, we there were five guys on our team. We had two Sherpas with us that we all acted like equal members. We hauled loads, we cooked, we fixed lines, we got to, you know, all chip in and help fix lines on the on the load safe face. And then, you know, you in that time you you left Camp Four with just your ice axe and you climbed to the summit without any fixed lines and you, you climbed back down. And this was sort of normal. But at but at that at that time everybody was um, you know if you were on Everest, you were a seasoned mountaineer. You had this skill set that you had you you picked up uh, in other places. I mean, I'd already been on Denali at that time. I had climbed Aconcagua, that climbed all over the U.S. and Canada. So this this graduation to, to the, this Himalayan, these Himalayan peaks was you know that was sort of the, the progression, right? If you were over on the Him in the Himalayas, you, you had a skill set and you had an understanding, and you were truly a, a climber slash mountaineer. And I think that. You know, I got to literally and figuratively follow in my father's footsteps in 94. And we were able to summit. And we were also, we were an environmental team on that on that trip. And the, the Nepalese government had restricted permits to one season, one team per season per year, because there was a little bit of bad press. If you can imagine, you know, in the 90s, when really early 90s, nobody was there. But there was a little bit of bad press for trash on the mountain and too many expeditions, which is kind of odd to think of about that today, given how things have progressed. And so we had an environmental permit. And so there were no stipulations. He still had to pay the climbing fee. And we went over there and we we implemented a, an environmental program that that first year we got 5,000 pounds of trash off the mountain. So we, you know, we showed that you could be a hardcore climbing expedition. We got four out of five of us on the summit, two without oxygen, and we got 5,000 pounds of trash off the mountain, right? So, so it showed that the two were mutually exclusive. And we, we instituted this uh, economic buyback system. Basically, we, we put a bounty on trash and oxygen bottles up high that um, just like, you know, if you know, the five cent deposit on, on aluminum cans in a city, you won't see any aluminum cans. And because the, the Sherpas that are on the mountain and, you know, they want to make more money, it's very mercenary. So if they're hauling a load up and they're getting paid a little bit of money to haul the load up, then they get paid some money to bring some trash down when they're coming down empty. So it was a very proactive way to, 
to address this trash on the mountain. And, and, and then I was, I, I was able, not sort of gone off on a tangent, but was able to get some funding for it. Um, and I ran that program for the next five years, and we got down over 25,000 pounds of trash off the mountain. And all I did was just tap into the, the expeditions that were on the mountain and use their Sherpas. And then I was able to get a bunch of the commercial teams to, to, to donate money and help with their personnel. And it, it, it was a very effective way to address a, a problem that needed to be addressed. And it worked out. So when I look back at that 94 team, I, you know, being able to climb in good style, being able to, uh, to follow literally and figuratively in my father's footsteps, and then uh, establish this environmental buyback program, which we call the Sagan Martha Environmental Expedition. Uh, it 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 was a it was an amazing trip, and you know and I think it and there's some bittersweet things there. So I summited in May, and my father was a was the guy. He did a lot of things, but he never talked about him, and he never looked in the rearview mirror. Right? He, you know, he walked the walk, but didn't talk a lot about this stuff. So. I remember I, I made a call on on this this sat phone, like the first of its kind from Everest Base Camp, and you, you it was a big briefcase. It looked like something out of James Bond. It like had this this like you know a red circle slash with basically you know your crotch area because it was like you weren't supposed to stand in front of the antenna because it would give you testicular cancer, and it cost like fifteen dollars a minute, right? And, you know, we were broke. So wow. I, I called him and I said, you know, I summited and he said, are you, you know, are you, how are your, you know, you, any frostbite? Because he lost his hand, his finger, a few digits on his fingers and his toes in 63 because he, you know, that, that, that foursome bivied at, you know, 28,000 feet without oxygen and tent. So he asked if I, if I had, uh, you know, any frostbite and, and I said, no. And he said, congratulations. Well done. And that's, that's the last we talked about it. Right. I mean, that's just, you know, all right, it's time to get on. And then tragically, so that was in May and tragically in 94, I mean, in, in September of 94, he was killed in a car accident. So we didn't really get to process and overlap. And, and as I, you know, I, I you know, I wish, I mean, things happen and, I, I feel robbed that I wasn't able to to share more about his climbing experiences on the mountain and mine, and then my, you know, my further climbing on Everest and other peaks around the world. Yeah, it's a shame. You use the word or the phrase "climbing in style." What does that mean? Well, you know, to me, and, and I, you know, I, I define myself as a climber. It really is. It's who I am. Like I said earlier, as much as I've picked it, it's picked me. And the things that I love about climbing are the, you know, you've got, you know, you've got this acquired skill set that's taken time and experience, right? And out of that experience comes judgment and ability to understand and mitigate risk. Those are, you know, it's an essential part of climbing to me. And then you've got the, you've got the partnerships, which are, are so important. Like, you know, how you climb together, how you safeguard each other. There, it's, it's, it's one of the things I like most about climbing is these relationships in the mountains. So you've got like skill, you know, partnerships, risk, and, and how you approach a mountain, right? And that to me embodies, you know, what mountaineering um, is about, like decision-making, figuring it out, right? Like, you know, there's no, there's no secret way to the top. It's about, you know, preparation, perseverance, and problem solving. I think that, and, and those are the things that give me the, the, the most joy and they, 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 they're the most fulfilling aspect. Even if you fail on a mountain, right, you've learned a lot about yourself. You, you know, you, you venture out into the unknown. It's truly adventure. And now I, I think that the way that these 8,000 meter peaks are being approached. It's, it's, it's moved from mountaineering to adventure travel, right? So, you know, if you go to Everest now, the lines are fixed all the way up the mountain, all the way to the summit, right? You've got guides and I'll say, you know, guides will include Sherpa 
guides, Nepalese guides, Western guides on the mound, and they're doing all the work for you, right? It's, I mean, it's amazingly colonial in a way. Like, you don't set up one camp. You don't haul one load. You don't melt one pot of water. You don't cook one, you know, meal for yourself. And you go on oxygen at four-plus liters a minute from camp two on fixed lines. Now, so to me, it like, that takes away the unknown. So if you stay healthy on Everest and you're reasonably fit, you know, you'll, there's a high degree that you're going to summit. But you haven't embodied, uh, you know, these elements that I think about in climbing and mountaineering. You've had an amazing adventure travel vacation. And I, and I don't mean to be critical about this because we all get to do hard things. And we, get, and we each get to define what's hard for ourselves, Right. But my issue in this new digital age is that people are presenting it that they've conquered Everest, that they're, you know, they've gone off and like they've climbed this 8,000 meter or that 8,000 meter peak, and they're not giving credit or being honest about the style, right? I think, you know, at the end of the day, one of the most important things about climbing and being a mountaineer or an adventurer is you have to make decisions. You have to figure it out, right? Whatever you're doing, you know, if you're in the Amazon, whatever kind of expedition, overland, trekking, when you're looking at that map and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, you have to make decisions. I'm very positive about guiding. I'm just negative about the, the new Instagram culture that isn't being truthful. You and your family have had this long, deep connection with Everest, and you've summited how many times? I've summited, and I've been on, I think, the mountain six times. So my father climbed in 63, and then the first time was 94 for me. And then I summited again in 2002, and then was on in 2012, and 16, and 17. So I've, I've been able to be on the mountain in a number of different capacities. I, that first trip, I felt like we got to climb it in good style. By 2002, lines were, were a lot of lines were fixed up high, and my partner Pete Athens and I tried the West Ridge without oxygen and without Sherpa support. We got blown off the mountain. That just wasn't going to happen. Like you know, when people hear that Everest, you know, there are too many people and it's crowded. Well, you got to remember that's one route per season, and it only gets really crowded when the fixing of the lines and the weather kind of pushes everybody into a short window. The West Ridge is infamously tough. It's infinitely tough. It's very committing, and I think that the time that we were on it, only a handful of people had climbed the West Ridge, and, and I think there were had there been 18 expeditions on it, and something like 32 people had been killed. So it, 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 it's, it, was a, it is a very committing and difficult route. And, and what know, makes it so tough? Well, it's, it, it's long, it's exposed, there's a lot of technical climbing on it that you're not going to, you know, you're not going to climb it in expedition style. You have to climb it in Alpine style, in that true mountaineering climbing partnership. And you've got to be able to move over a terrain at altitude that's that's difficult. And it's a it's a beautiful line when you look at it. You, you know, you can understand it sort of embodies what a what a committing line at altitude looks like. So in, in 2002, uh, we were there making a movie with National Geographic called Surviving Everest, and it looked at you know the Everest from the through the eyes of the sons of, of the, you know, the, some of the first climbers. So it was, I, I was the connection to the first American team. Peter Hillary was the connect, obvious connection to, you know, the first successful team and his father, Sir Edmund Hillary. And then Jomling Norgay was the connection. He's the son of Tenzing Norgay. So the main part of our expedition was doing the Southwest Ridge, and we were trying to do the the West Ridge without oxygen and Sherpa support. And it was very clear that the climbing was too difficult. 
for us and that the we weren't moving fast enough and the conditions weren't great. So we, we came back down and we joined the main team and we summited via the Southwest Ridge and we we carried camera equipment up there and it it was amazing trip to be with with uh, Pete Athens and to be with John Ling and to be with Peter Hillary. And the movie's quite it's it's good. I you know it's a twenty year old movie, but it's a, a nice look at Everest. So that was that was two thousand and uh, and two, and then I went back in two thousand and twelve to help with the movie and commemorate the the fiftieth anniversary of the of the the American team in nineteen sixty three. And so again, we a group of us. Uh, Dave Morton, Jake Norton, Charlie Mace, and myself tried the West Ridge again without oxygen and without Sherpa support. And we got up to the ridge proper and the, or just below it, but the, the conditions had deteriorated even the 10 years from when I was on it in 2002. Global warming is the thing. I mean, any, you, you, all you have to do is look at the glacier recession. And so on these 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 snowfields that we moved over pretty efficiently 10 years earlier, like the ice was gone and it was rotten and it was this really poor dangerous climbing through these rock bands with this rotten ice just to get to the West Ridge proper and we worked on that route really hard for a long time and you know Dave Morton and and Jake uh, and Charlie, I mean these are, you know, I think we had like 17 Everest summits between us at this time or something unreasonably high. So these are really fine mountaineers. You know, it's a privilege to climb with these guys. And we we pulled the plug because it just wasn't going to happen. Right. And it's a testament to how how difficult that route is. But even more so that Tom Hornbein and Willie Unsold did it in 1963 with the first American team. And that really represents like, if you think about it, that's the most significant American uh, ascent in the Himalayas, and it was 1963, and that holds today. You use the term alpine style as opposed to expedition style. There's a difference. So alpine style is it's a, a small group that's self-sufficient that does not fix lines. So expedition style, you... You get to base camp, you start to acclimate, and you, you fix lines through any, any of the sections that are difficult, right? And that those lines are then a lifeline to get up and down. And it's a, it's a style that's safe, and it's a little bit cumbersome, and it takes a lot of work. And then on the other side, there's alpine style, where it's whether it's your, you know, your partner or with your one or two other people, where you, you belay each other up and you bring the ropes up as you go basically more of a tradition so you go light and fast and you're committing yourself to the to the route you know you got to figure it out and if you're going to have to go down you're going to have to figure that out as well because you don't you haven't left lines in place that that facilitate movement easily so it's a more pure style style of climbing and if you look at cutting edge climbing today it's all you know, it's all alpine style, and these young men and women are doing stuff that is just mind-boggling hard and committing. Like, it's really amazing to see, you know, what's being done on an alpine style in the Himalayas. And it's almost as though, like, the, the two styles aren't any like anywhere the same. No, they're not even close because you've got you've got this adventure travel on these big peaks now, like like Everest and Oyu and Monoslu and the lines are fixed and there are camps everywhere. And, and then you've got on the other end of the spectrum, these men and women that are, their, their skill set is so refined and their commitment level is so high. They're doing things that, that are technically so brilliant and committing. You, you can't wrap your head around. Like it's, it's two different species. You do a lot of search and rescue work now. And uh, we'll get to that a bit later. But you had an episode, I believe, on Everest where you engaged in a, in a rescue. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, I was guiding Everest in 2017. And I've, I've been really lucky to be on Everest in a number of different capacities. So I was on it as a, you know, climbing in good style and in, in, in 94. And I, you know, those Westridge trips, even though they weren't successful, they were good style. And then filming on Everest, I've done a bunch of, you know, being part of films. And it's a, it's a different way to look at the mountain and a different way you've got to work. And then I, I had the opportunity uh, in 15 and 16, um, and actually 16 and 17, to, to guide on Everest, which, you know, I, I really enjoyed that as well because you're you're helping people, you know, get to the summit and, and you're really working with them to fulfill their dreams, right? And, you know, because I've already summited, I've already checked that off. And so climbing in this other capacity is really fulfilling. And I, I've really enjoyed that process. And in in seventeen, I I was there was another guide and myself, and we each had one climber with us. Both these climbers were like unreasonably strong, right? Like they were not your stereotypical, you know, climber on a commercial expedition. You know, they were young, they were fit, they were motivated, they were humble, right? It was like an ideal situation. And so we got up to the South Call, and then we. We had three Sherpas with us helping, but we, you know, everybody was equally strong and everybody was carrying their own oxygen. And we got up just below the south summit and um, this, this kind of, you know, you've got a headlamp on because it's dark and you're in this sort of very kind of myopic kind of like, you know, you've got the glow of the hel- headlamp, it's dark out and all you see, you're kind of disoriented and it's windy and it's cold and you're, way above 8,000 meters, and you got your down suit on, and it's kind of like you're in your own world for sure. And all of a sudden, this guy kind of stumbles out of the dark and into, you know, our headlamp area. And it, and he's, he's mumbling, and he's borderline non-ambulatory, and we, we get to him, and we try to shoot him up with dexamethasone, which is a drug you use at altitude to try to keep people up and going when they've got cerebral edema. You know, it kind of opens up the window to try to move them down, and the guy collapses. So we're we're at the at the at the balcony, which I think is twenty seven five or so, twenty six, twenty seven six, like somewhere up there. It's pretty high, and and it's dark, and this guy is he's alive, but he's he's sort of moaning and trying to crawl. And so we look at each other and we go, all right, we got to do something, right? And this is a, a testament to the two young climbers I was with. I had a 40-foot section of rope and they were like, well, we're not going to the summit, right? Yeah, we're we're going to help get this guy down, which, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, people passing people on, um, you know, you know, people in trouble on Everest and like bad behavior and, you know, where's the humanity? Well, these guys immediately said, all right, I'm, um, you know, we're in. And it turned out that I had a 40-foot section of, of, of small rope that I, I, you know, on summit day I like because it gives me some options to pass people on fixed lines or safeguard, you know, each other moving in odd terrain if things get a little weird. And so I, I ended up taking that, that cord and I took one of the Sherpas, Tashi Sherpa, we ended up dragging this guy down for, I don't know, the next six, seven hours to get him down to, to base camp. I mean, to camp four at the South Call at 8,000 meters. And it was just, it was brutal. Like, I, it, in theory, it shouldn't have felt that hard. But just dragging this guy down with this, on the fixed lines, with this 40-foot piece of cord where we did the system where, one person, you know, put it through their delay device and, and lowered the non-ambulatory guy with the other person dragging him 40-foot sections all the way down, this 1,200 feet down there. This kid, Tashi, this Sherpa, God, he was so strong. Like, I'd do one or two, like, 40-foot poles, and I'd be, I couldn't move, but I felt like I hit the wall. And we've got oxygen going, and then Tashi would just, like, he'd just, he'd, he he'd do 10 sections at a time. And it was, you know, we, we dragged them all the way down because, you know, what are you going to do, right? Like, I think we're confronted with things and there's a right thing and a wrong thing to do. 
and I'm I was really proud that the um, that the that you know the two young climbers that you know their goal was to climb Everest and the other guide and the other Sherpas were like oh yeah we're we're going down but it turned out that the two of us could be efficient enough uh, and the other guys went up and they they summited and but we dragged this guy all the way down and uh, we got into the South Call and into medical attention and then he died. And it turned out to be it was some Slovakian guy that I, I think he was sort of on the, the mountain in a in a what I'd call a bandit capacity. I don't think he he had paid a permit fee and he was with some budget Nepalese outfitter and nobody was taking any responsibility for him and he was trying to climb Everest without oxygen. It was a weird thing. But again, you know, in the mountains sometimes you're you're you, know, you come across these situations that, to me, you know, there's a right thing to do. And I would have liked to get a, a fourth ascent of the mountain, but um, I didn't. But you, this is what you do. And, in fact, you know, my mother, who doesn't look in the rearview mirror at all, said, you know, when I somehow she heard about the story. I don't even think I told her. She did say, like, you know, of all your climbing, you know, yeah, cause she's non-pulsed by climber. She thinks we're all kind of silly and self-absorbed. She said... You know, what you did on that summit day, you know, it makes me the most proud of all your climbing. It, yeah. So that went a long way. But, you know, this, uh, these things happen. you got a lot of people on a mountain, and a lot of them are unprepared, even with the fixed lines, and things go bad up, up high. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was that last trip in 17. Let me switch gears on you. In all of your climbing and expedition experiences, What's the strangest thing you've ever come across? Oh, wow. I mean, most of the time, if you've like, you know, if you've planned and, you know, you're not blindsided. But, uh, kind of, it was a, 10 years ago or so, maybe as long as yeah, time goes on, about 15 years ago, I was guiding a trip to Karsten's Pyramid. And... This is in this was in the day where you you had to go through the jungle to get to 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 climb the mountain because now you can fly in the the the, the problem is there's a a mine that borders Karsten's pyramid and uh, the the mine now lets you fly in on a helicopter basically to the base camp but in the past they they didn't want you to do that because they you know they were kind of in the midst of a uh, of a civil war and and there was a bunch of tribal fighting and so you had to hike in like five or six days i can't remember now where is this answer papua new guinea so it's it's on the papa side you know in new guinea it's kind of crazy like you you hike for 12 hours a day in the mud and the rain and over roots and up and down things and you know you're you got to cross these rivers and like, you got to walk on the side of these like ravines. And I remember thinking to myself, like if anybody slips here, we are not getting the body back. Like this is like raging torrents in the jungle. Like as soon as we got to the mountain and we got to, we got to use, employ the use of ropes and protection. I mean, it was a sigh of relief. Like, okay, now people, now we can you know, safeguard people correctly. You, know, you wouldn't think that because it sort of looks steep and vertical and it's just limestone monolith in the middle of nowhere. But like the, 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 the jungle was the scariest part. But so you, you fly in and there's all these shenanigans that I won't get into. But you, you have these poppin' porters that from whatever access point in the jungle, like you take those the villagers from that access point. And so we, and, and it seems like the, you know, both men and women, you know, help carry your gear and basically they're porters to help get your gear in, and then you, you pay them. And, and we, we get to the first stream crossing and we're going to have lunch. And so we all stop and I've got this, this Indonesian guide with us that speaks Papin because I'd be totally lost. And, you, you know, this Indonesian guide counterpart makes it all happen. And you, you work with him. And he's, a, he's a, this guy that I worked with. His name was Kat. He was funny and sarcastic. And, but we're, we're sitting there eating our, our, our lunch. And all of a sudden, there's this commotion. 
this happened really quickly. And I turned around and like eight feet from me, these two poppin' women, and these, these women are like four foot eight, right? Like the poppins aren't a big, you know, of big people, you know, if you look at photos of them, they're, they're not very tall. And these, these two women are obviously in a very heated exchange and argument. One picks up a machete and is trying to kill the other one. And this has gone on 10 feet from where we're eating lunch and picks up the machete and is coming to like cleave the other lady's head and that other woman is quite fast, and she gets under the blow of the machete. So it kind of goes over, and I think it, like, cut her calf a bit. But then it goes down onto the ground, and then the woman that that got under the blow uh, and, and wasn't killed picks up a rock, and she, she's trying to kill the other woman with this rock, right? Now... This happened very quickly, and it's right in front of us, and all of us, we can't believe what's going on because it's so violent and so quick. Then the, a couple of the popping guys grab the women, and they separate them, and the women are still like these little angry bumblebees trying to get at each other. We're, we're shocked. Like, we, we don't know what's going on. And, and Kat, my, the Indian, Indonesian guide I'm working with, he's smoking a cigarette. He's just sort of leaning up against a rock, and I'm like, you know, what the hell's going on? And he's like, they don't like each other. You know, he's, that's what he tells me. I'm like, I can tell they don't like each other. They just tried to kill each other. And uh, he goes, yeah, that's, uh, that's wife number one and wife number three. And they don't like each other. So then the solution to the problem was the, the whole group, the Poppins, not us. Uh, they ran wife number three out of the camp and, then for the next day, she kept on trying to attack the, the other lady again, but finally gave up. And it was relatively smooth sailing from from then into the base camp. But those are things that you don't like. You know, I can deal with we weather. I can deal with technical difficulties. I can deal with logistics. You know, these are things that you learn to deal with when you've been in the mountains a lot. You know, risk, you know, all those things. And... This was way out of my comfort zone, like the two popping women trying to kill each other. Talk about uh, marital discord. <laughs> yeah. Was there ever a time out there when you came really close to not coming back? You know, I've, you spend a lot of time in the mountains, and there's, there's objective dangers on big mountains that you just can't get away from, right? In fact, sport climbing and, and climbing at the local cliffs, although it you know, seems sort of outlandish sometimes, is really quite safe if you follow the rules. Now, when you get into the big mountains, you know, rockfall, avalanches, weather, there are things you can't, you know, you can do everything you can to, to reduce the risk as much as possible, but you can't, you can't remove it completely. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, climbing is very appealing to so many people is because, you know, you, you can work to to eliminate the risk, but the risk is there, and the risk is there. You've got to you've got to you've got to be focused. It's game on. But uh, I think it, I want to say it was ninety seven or maybe ninety eight, somewhere in the late nineties. I was in Pakistan climbing, and I was with a, a, a partner, this very strong climber, uh, and and now guide in Chamonix, Chris Erickson. And we were sort of the odd thing was we we had some climbing objectives, but the weather wasn't really good, and and uh, we weren't successful on our climbing objectives. And we were we were leaving the Concordia area, which is where K two is, and G one and G two um, in in the Karakoram area in Pakistan. And we were then going up this valley, and then we were going to cross over this pass called the Gondogoro Law. Law means pass. And there were two of us, there's Chris and May, and then there were two Balti porters that went with us. We all, uh, we all had big packs on, and but they supposedly knew the way how to get across this pass and then another two days out to this village and this road. Well, it turned out, like, so we go up this valley and then, there's snowing a little bit, 
but the farther up the valley we go, and then we they're they're telling us where this pass is, and we Chris and I are we start going up, and it's getting pretty wind loaded the the snow, and it's light snow, and the further we go towards this pass, which basically it's like it's, it's turning into full on mountaineering you know, climbing and we've got an ice axe and we decide to take the rope out and we decide to, you know, all rope up together. And we're basically guiding these two Balti porters because they don't have the very clear, they don't have the skill set, but they're telling us, oh yeah, it's just over this, this next knoll or this, this thing on the horizon. And we're going on for hours and then the sun comes out and there's some point release going on. And I, I, take the rope and there's this knoll ahead of us. I go to the base of the knoll straight up because I'm now I'm really worried about avalanches and I don't want to cut the slope at all. And then all of a sudden there's this rumbling and I had just put in a picket to, to belay and kind of fix the line. And this, there's this rumbling and this massive cloud of avalanche dust is rolling down towards us. What happened was that this knoll was probably a 50-foot knoll in this big, in this big slope. And uh, the avalanche comes down, it hits the knoll, and the knoll splits the force. And then the whole slope goes that Chris and the two porters at the other end of the rope, but I put in a picket, right? And just by luck, we 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 weren't dragged into the main avalanche and down the slope and killed, right? You know, this is terrifying in itself. And we had to kind of dig out from a little avalanche debris from, but uh, we were okay. And then we're like, okay, well, the, the avalanche, it's gone, right? So the slope's not loaded and the porters are saying, oh yeah, we're, we're just over this next rise. And we, so we just climbed the, the slope that went because it's not going to go again and we're feeling very safe and we come over this rise and we see the avalanche crown and the crown is like five feet tall, right? I mean, it was massive. The fact that we weren't killed is really stunning, but we, we go above the crown and then there's, this, there's another slope up there that's totally loaded and we're stuck. So we we camped in this in the in this Berkshund there because we figured that if we stayed in the Berkshund the avalanche might go over us and maybe later come down and then we climbed this ridge and we picked the the at like three in the morning when it was coldest and we unroped because if I mean we went over one at a time and then we finally got over the pass and the 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 windward side was scrubbed clean. You know, we had to do a couple of little repels and we got down and the, the Baltis were so pleased that they were alive. They, they said when we got to the village, they were going to, we were going to sacrifice a goat and we got to the village and they made a big deal of getting this goat and we sacrificed the goat because we lived. And it was, it was, it was, a, a, you know, an, an interesting kind of, sub story in a, in a larger expedition. Cause usually you think about, you know, you're on a big mountain or you're trying something technical and that's where the danger is. And this was you know, going over this pass that people use all the time. Right. And the fact that it is it got loaded and we got up into it and we, you know, we got to a point where we couldn't retreat out of it. And, you know, we were lucky that we, you know, there was some skill and that we like, we, we talked, Chris and I said, well, we should go right to that knoll because we won't cut the slope and we might be safe there. And that really was a eye-opening experience and it was terrifying. And it's made me since then, I'm very wary of avalanches. They scare me. So I'm very conservative when I'm backcountry skiing and because I've been in one and I don't like them. So yeah, that was a, a near-death experience. Who's the best climber or adventurer you've ever come across? I mean, there, there are so many fine climbers, men and women, right? I mean, I was, you know, I was lucky enough to cross paths with Alex Lowe in the early days. You know, all of us looked up to him and, you know, he did things that you couldn't wrap your head around at the time. You know, his technical abilities, his, his cardiovascular, like, 
stamina. Like he was just a monster. But I mean, there's so many good climbers that I've had the privilege to be around and be inspired with. And, you know, some of them to say, are, you know, we're really good friends. There was a guy in Seattle that I, that I was friends with named Chad Kellogg. Unfortunately, he was killed in Patagonia in, I think, 2014. But he, he, was a, he was an amazingly strong and motivated climber. He was in the speed ascents on big peaks, kind of before its time. But in our own backyard, he did these amazingly technical traverses. And like, he just got better. With, you know, almost it seemed like with each season, right? Whether it was in Alaska or in the Himalayas, he was just a guy that was getting stronger and stronger, and really is had had taken that last step into to world class ability. And I was always inspired by him because he was so committed to his craft, right? That he he was always focused on getting better and learning more, and he was. He had this journey that matched that and that he was a, you know, he was a, by the end, he was a full-on practicing Buddhist. Like he came from a very, like, chaotic background. So you saw this true, like, hero's journey from, like, yeah, it was kind of off the rails and, and kind of nuts as a young man. And then a, a number of things happened to him, these trials and tribulations. And he became this very centered Buddhist climber that was like collecting this this quiver of skill set that put him in an, an elite category i kind of liken it to like he was like at the end he was this samurai i kind of like he was committed to his craft he had made peace with so many things in his life and had all this balance and we were robbed of seeing what chad was going to be able to do and like he was a hometown hero right when he was in town with with um would hang out and get food, would go climb something. And, uh, you know, he was like that with everybody. So he, on a very personal level, but there's so many, like, there's so many alpinists that are doing such hard committing things. It's, it's truly amazing. When I was talking to John Turk about, you know, kind of what separates those who survive from those who don't, and the really sketchy on the edge type expeditions, he, he said that presence, being present in the moment, focused in the moment, was one of the key aspects. And when you brought up Kellogg being a, a Buddhist and having come to resolve a lot of issues, I wonder if that, that played in it, too, where having being present. I mean, I think like to be a fine climber, you have to be present. You really have to be present in the moment because everything you do matters. And I think... I should have touched on this earlier, but that's one of the things I love about climbing. In this day and age where, you know, you can push work back till Monday, you can, like, there are not enough things that you can do that everything, that everything you do in that craft matters. Like how you tie your knot, how you belay, the decisions you make, they all matter in the moment. And I think you're right. You know, to be, you know, a really strong climber, you gotta you have to be present and people talk about getting in flow state. The problem is with this cutting edge climbing, this true alpine technical cutting edge rock and ice climbing at altitude, it's really dangerous. There's too many things that can go wrong. Unfortunately, you there's so many good climbers that have been killed over the last twenty years. So I'm not so like you have to be present to negotiate the technical difficulties, but you're still you have to be willing to accept this risk and being present or not is not going to mitigate that risk. So it's just it's it's part of it's it's just it's just a factor in this type of climbing if you're involved in cutting edge alpine climbing now. From all your travels and experiences, uh, what lessons have you learned that you can share with us? You know, I think that for me, climbing is really there's a cerebral journey to it. There's a, a very emotional journey to it. There's a physical journey to it. And all those things, uh, I, I learn every time I go out something about myself on, on one of those levels. But I think as I've gotten older, I, I'm much more appreciative of the process, right? Because we get older. I'm 56. I'm not as strong as I was. I've had a lot of injuries. You're working around stuff. There's these frustrations that your body's not 
performing like it used to. And I think that the, I'm becoming much more appreciative of the process of climbing. It doesn't have to be hard, but that, that process where, you know, there is risk, there's skill involved, your response, you know, what you do matters. And I think most importantly, the partnerships, like who you get to climb with trumps everything else. To go out and, you know, whether it's climbing locally or on something big that's much more involved, you know, who you go is, I mean, it's a gift that you get to share this experience with, with people. And I think that's where I've really ended up. It's like, and there are all these people I just, I love being in the mountains with and, and sharing this, this journey with them. And so I think, you know, as a kid, you know, as a climber, you know, you care about the summits more than anything else. And I was lucky in 94, I got to summit Everest. So I got to check that box as a young man. And, you know, I get to step back and you know, concentrate on other things that are, seem more valuable in the, in that, that process of climbing. So maybe it's just maturity, you know. I'm I'm hoping to be maturing at you know, at some 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 level. In today's world, where it seems like every mountain's been climbed and every ocean's been dived, every jungle's been walked or explored, how do you find adventure? That's a really good question. How we find adventure, right? And I think that the unique thing is we everybody gets to define it for themselves, right? So climbing Everest in this sort of adventure travel style might be someone's ultimate adventure. Great. Let them go do that. Right. That's meaningful to them. I, I think about it in terms of the experience, right. And the, you know, there are these, these two like matrix, like an X and Y axes. And like on, on one, you'll have authentic and unauthentic, right. And one will be predictable and unpredictable. Now we get the, choose where we end up in that framework. So going to Disneyland with the kids is very predictable and very unauthentic. But, you know, you have fun with the kids when you do your Disneyland, Disney World trip, right? It doesn't mean it, it doesn't have meaning. But on the other end of like authentic and unpredictable will be going to Mogadishu in Somalia, right? Like it'd be total chaos and danger. So when I when I look at adventure, it's like, for me, you know, what am I doing that the outcome isn't certain, right? And that there's an authenticity in part of the process, whether you're going to new areas that you have to figure out. Because you mentioned that, like, you know, the, the four corners of the world have been mapped and explored, right? So I think it's it boils into what's what brings you that meaning that puts you in a place where it's uncertain and authentic, Right. And, and that's the beauty of exploration. We get to pick it. You know, we get to pick what we want to do. Like, is it trekking over, you know, getting that map out, drinking some whiskey and going, you know, I don't want to go on an 8,000 meter peak, but I think I can trek from here to here in two months, which is about what it would take you to six weeks. Right. And that, there's amazing value to that because it's you're doing something new. It's uncertain. And to you, it's authentic. So I think that that while the world has been, you know, mapped, we all get to define what adventure is. And, uh, and for me, it's trying to do something authentic and unpredictable. Yeah, the combination of there's a bit of risk, there's problems that you need to solve, and in places that inspire you and, and meeting new people that uh, also inspire you, I think. Right. And, and sharing this process with people that you like that you connect with. And then there's that journey. So, you know, you're getting the physical, you're getting the emotional, you're getting the cerebral all wrapped into one. And I think that's the hallmark of a good adventure is all that coming together and doing something that the outcome wasn't certain and you had to figure it out. Do you have any adventures coming up or ones that you're, you've broke, you've broken out the whiskey, you've broken out the map and you're, you're contemplating going on. Well, I mean, I, I love Nepal, right? And I love being in that Sherpa culture, and I love being in the Kumbu, which is the Everest region. And, I, you know, there's some, uh, there's some peaks in there that never get climbed that are pretty, that are pretty small that, that relative to the 8,000-meter peaks that you can go with one person and not pay a huge peak fee and climb them alpine style. So you have that, that process, and there's, there's actually some unclimbed peaks in that area. So I have a sneaky suspicion 
you know, I'm looking at maps, right? Like that's part of the equation that perhaps this spring I'll be doing something in Nepal. I've got the map out and I certainly like whiskey. So currently you're involved in some organizations. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I've got I I do some nonprofit things and I one organization I'm involved with is called the Z Foundation and it's spelled D Z I. Uh, and they this organization does community initiated development work in rural Nepal. And I feel like Nepal has given so much to me and my family over the whole year over the years, over generations that it's a way for me to get back to the community. So they do uh, education projects, clean water projects, agricultural projects, community health projects, and they do really good work. So I'm involved with them. Um, I actually chair the, the organization, and that, that's what I do in Nepal. And then um, in Seattle, I'm involved in Seattle Mountain Rescue. So I figured that you know I can give back with my climbing, my my climbing skill set. And that organization, you know, we anything that happens in King County that requires you know technical skills, ropes, steep angles, stuff. I'm part of a team that does that. And we get called out on a regular basis. And that's actually quite gratifying to, to give back to the community that way. So those are two things that, you know, I figured I got to build up some karmic points as I get older that that are very near and dear to me. So the, the Z Foundation and Seattle Mountain Rescue, and it, it, uh, it feels good to give back. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks. I mean, this went by pretty quickly. Thank you for for leading the conversation and inviting me on the show. Uh, it's been a fun morning. It's been a pleasure, and uh, we need to have you come on back and All right. uh, share some more stories and and uh, find out what you've been up to. Well, I look forward to that. Well, have a great day. Thanks. All right, Brent. We'll see you down the road. Bye now. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com, where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>